John chapter 7. John chapter 7 this morning is where we're headed. John 7 and verse 14 is where we're going to begin. I'm going to read verses 14 through 24. If you will follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. John 7, beginning in verse 14. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Verse 21 says, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now in our text this morning, we find Jesus. Now he's in the temple. Now he's uh, midpoint through the feast, and Jesus is in the temple, and he's gone up to the feast discreetly, of course, as we noted last week in our passage. And now we can see here the wisdom in Jesus' discretion in not going up to the feast publicly. Jesus does everything at the appointed time, at the appropriate time, the the time appointed by the Father. Um, Just think about this with me for a moment. Had Jesus gone up to the feast in the way, in the fashion that his unbelieving brothers had suggested, he would have attracted the attention of those who were seeking to kill him before it was time. Now we find Jesus about halfway through the feast and he's going up to the temple and he's going to go teach. And had Jesus been too quick to go or had he made a show of going up to the feast, he likely would have met some opposition that may have prevented him this opportunity to teach this large gathering of people at the temple. So here we find him midpoint through the feast and and now he's in the temple and he's beginning to teach. And we don't know what Jesus taught here He was likely teaching from the Old Testament scriptures, uh, teaching about himself, uh, revealing himself in the Old Testament. That's typically what Jesus did. That's typically what we find him teaching when he is teaching, but we don't know for sure what he taught here. But we do know that those who heard him were surprised with what they heard. They were surprised with his teaching. And specifically, they were surprised by his knowledge. It says in verse 15, Looking at verse 15 again, it says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're not talking about what he's teaching. They're talking about how he's teaching and and the fact that he appears to have learned without being taught. Evidently, they had never heard Jesus teach before this. They're surprised by his wisdom, not having been a disciple of any rabbi, which was traditional. It would not have been uncommon for someone to have some knowledge of the Old Testament as Jesus did, but but they were likely surprised at his command of the Scriptures. It's very likely he was quoting a great deal of Scriptures, and, and that 
surprise them. It was unusual, it was surprising to them that Jesus could carry on in the manner of one who had great learning without having been taught by the rabbis. And, and don't mistake this for adoration either. It's not as if we can't believe this. What a wonderful teacher he is. This is not adoration or admiration on their part. In effect, they're calling him unlearned. In effect, they're saying, how could this uneducated one be teaching like this? And look at Jesus' answer. Note that he doesn't claim to be self-schooled here. Note the source of Jesus' learning. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Look where Jesus gives the credit. He gives credit where credit is due. Jesus gives the credit to God the Father. Think about this. Uh, We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. He does everything at the appropriate time, at the appointed time. Who gave the appointed time? God the Father gives the appointed time, right? God the Father sends him. And this again is the opposite to his unbelieving brother's suggestion. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He puts the attention on God the Father. He's come to teach his Father's teaching. This is opposite to the world's way of doing things. The the humility of Christ here is seen, and this is a powerful reminder to us about how Jesus served and how he ministered. He ministered in humility, very antithetical to the world's way of thinking. The humility of Christ is seen here in this fact that he will not claim glory for himself. He intends to give glory to God the Father. He's not grabbing it for himself. Now note how Jesus exposes their unbelief in him. They have unbelief in him. And and, and he also teaches something very important here, very important theological truth we found taught here. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You see, this was the question. Where did this fellow come from? How is it he's teaching when he has no learning? And by whose authority is he coming? First note how he exposes their unbelief. They had raised a question about Jesus' fitness for teaching, teaching the things of God. They wanted to know who he thought he was coming in and teaching them as if he were one of the rabbis. The rabbis taught as as Jesus did. Only I'm I'm guessing Jesus probably taught even better. And here they are, they're raising this question about Jesus' fitness for teaching the things of God, and he, in turn, questions their fitness for believing the things of God. He questions their faith. You see, if they if they really, truly believed in him, if they had faith in him, they would have no question about his fitness for teaching. They would know. They would know from their their own... Wisdom, the wisdom given them by God, the the wisdom granted them by God, they would know if they had faith in him, they would know from where his wisdom comes. Remember back in chapter 6 when the people there wanted to know what it was to be doing the things of God? They say, what is it to be doing the things of God? In John 6 and verse 29, he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work that you're to be doing. Believe. (laughs) Believe in him whom he has sent. Richard Baxter wrote in his well-known and respected book, The Reformed Pastor, that nothing can be rightly known if God be not known. He says it well. Nothing nothing can be rightly known if God be not known. That's their problem. They don't truly know God. They don't truly have faith. 
They don't truly want to obey God. These people did not believe in Christ. They did not have faith in Him. And if they did, they would not have a question about His ability or His teaching. And that's a profound truth for us this morning. This is where Jesus teaches a great theological truth. Those who have faith in Christ and those who truly wish to obey God will have spiritual understanding. Commentator Henry Morris points to the necessity of faith in understanding the things of God. He, he makes the, the, the point very well that we've got to believe if we want to understand. We have to have faith if we want to understand the things of God. And he quotes Augustine. Augustine, he says, emphasizes the place of faith in understanding this saying. Understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that thou mayest understand. That's a profound truth, isn't it? That's a powerful truth for us. Sometimes we think, I want to understand, so I want to, I want to study. But we need to have faith first. We need to believe first. And that's a foundational truth for understanding God's Word. You've got to have faith. How many people have you heard say, I've read the Bible before and I don't get it. The question should be, do you believe that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins? Do you have faith that Jesus pays the price for your sins? And maybe the question before that is, do you see yourself as a sinner? Because that's where a lot of people have a problem. See, that's a foundational truth to understanding God's Word. You have to have faith. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know His Word? Then believe in Him. Then trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Have faith. Obey. As D.A. Carson says, a seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will. This is a faith commitment God then fills the seeker's horizon. And he means fills the seeker's horizon with understanding. Do you really truly want to obey God's, God's will? Do you have a desire to be obedient? Do you believe? It's a faith commitment, says Carson. But these people questioning Jesus, raising their questions about his learning or lack thereof, his teaching, his education or lack thereof, they didn't have faith. They weren't fundamentally committed to doing God's will. And those we're seeing here who are challenging Jesus, we need to understand they're the Jewish authorities who are seeking to kill Him, and they eventually did. And in their unbelief, they are blinded from the truth. And note here that they aren't discrediting His teaching, but they're challenging His credentials. They said, who told you you could teach? Who taught you? You you don't have, seem to have any learning, but yet you have wisdom. So so that's just where Jesus goes next. By whose authority? They want to know. By whose authority do you teach? Verse 18, look at it again. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Do you see it? Jesus says, I come to glorify the Father, not myself. And my teaching is not my own. And the one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. I'm not speaking by my own authority. I'm speaking by the authority of God the Father. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is, is true. Get that? He said, is true. 
I am Him. I am Jesus Christ. He says, I am the Messiah. You believe in Me. I came to glorify the Father. I, I came to do the Father's work. I came to teach the Father's teaching. And in Him there is no falsehood. He says in verse 18, No, Jesus wasn't taught by the rabbis. Poor Jesus. Wasn't taught by the rabbis. Oh wait, He has something far better. <laughs> right? Jesus had no formal schooling that qualified him to teach. He has something far better. He had a commission from God the Father. It doesn't get any better than that. He was about his Father's business. And later in John 8.28, Jesus will put it like this. When we get to John 8.28, we'll find this. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus didn't need the teaching of the rabbis. He brings the teaching of the Father and He brings it from, from glory. He brings it from His heavenly home. Jesus claimed no glory for Himself and never suggested He was speaking for Himself, nor did He claim He was doing His own work. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, For I have not spoken on My own authority, but the Father who sent Me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I'm really thankful that Jesus Christ does what the Father tells him. Yes? Think about it. He has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak, and I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore I say, as the Father has told me, there in John 12 and verse 50, Jesus only followed the Father's orders. He only taught the Father's teaching. And what He taught, He brought with Him from heaven. But look at verse 19. Jesus obeys the Father, but these people don't obey Jesus is all about obedience, isn't he? he? He himself is obedient to the commands of the Father, and yet these people who confront him, they're not obedient. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? He's about ready to say, here's an example, here's, a, here's an illustration, here's a case in point. Has not Moses given you the law? The answer would, would have naturally been, yeah, yes, of course he has. Yet none of you keeps the law. And here's an example. Why do you seek to kill me? See, the Jewish authorities who were seeking to kill Jesus don't even have a fundamental desire to obey God's law. It's seen in the fact that they aren't obeying the very law of God they claim to uphold. To Jesus' question, has not Moses given you the law? The natural response would have been yes, and having established that they do have the law, Jesus proceeds to go on and expose the fact that they don't have pure motives to keep the very law they say they get from Moses. And that's contrasted by his pure motives, Jesus' pure motives in doing all the Father has sent him and in teaching only what the Father has taught him. He says, yet none of you keeps the law. And by the way, why are you trying to kill me? And there it is. He knows their hearts, doesn't he? He knows they want to kill him, and he challenges them with the truth that they're seeking to put to death an innocent man, which is in direct opposition to the law they'd received from Moses, 
which stated in Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. Their response, what was their response? Look at verse 20. It was denial. It was wild accusation, which was accurately representative of the true condition of their hearts. Look at verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. It's like a bait and switch. Oh, uh, look over there. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Of course, they're guilty. They do not believe in Jesus and certainly were seeking to put him to death, but they deny and accuse just like the father of lies, the devil. Just like their father, the devil, right? They're denying and they're accusing. Jesus' answer points back to the time he healed the paralytic on the Sabbath. Remember back in John 5 when he healed the paralytic? Note that they only marveled at his miracle. And that's a sad statement when you think about it. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Jesus is reminding them that rather than being moved to faith in him by the miracle, which is what ought to, ought to have happened, they should have seen the miracle and said, this must be the Son of God. This must be the Messiah. They ought to have seen and believed at the miracle. But in fact, they were more incensed that he dare tell the man who had been, oh yeah, he was lame for 38 years, to carry his mat on the Sabbath. Seems kind of funny, doesn't it? Never mind the fact that you made this man whole. How dare you violate the finer point of the law? And now Jesus points out the fact that they don't even keep the finer points of the law themselves. He points to their practice of circumcision on the Sabbath, verses 22 and 23. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? See, so they they had a law that required circumcision of a baby on the eighth day, and they had a law that prohibited ordinary work on the Sabbath. A little bit of a conflict there. But which law did they obey if the baby was born on the Sabbath? Well, they broke the law of the Sabbath to keep the law of circumcision. And Jesus takes them back to that. And here's Jesus making it clear to them how inconsistent they were in their indignation at his making well the whole body. You see, they looked at circumcision as a, as a purification of the body, but, but Jesus makes the whole body well of this paralytic, this 38-year paralytic. You see, they broke the law of Sabbath to keep the law of circumcision. And they did it repeatedly. And Jesus, on one occasion, makes a man well, makes his whole body well, and dare suggest he pick up his mat and walk for the first time in 38 years on the Sabbath. But note how Jesus instructs them and us here. Verse 24, and this is a powerful reminder for us when, when the world we live in knows this one verse, and not this one we're going to look at, but the world that we live in knows this verse, judge not that ye be not judged, right? Everybody in the world knows that verse. This is an interesting statement. 
do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The idea here is judge with discernment, judge with the wisdom of God. So the Bible doesn't teach us not to judge. It does teach us to not judge for the wrong reasons. And here we have clarification from Jesus Christ himself who says, be certain that you judge with pure motives. Be certain that you judge with right judgment, with spiritual discernment. Discernment only gained from God, his spirit, his word. If you're not going to judge with the wisdom of God's word, then you better not judge, right? Jesus' opponents have only been making a superficial judgment about him. They've been looking at the surface. They've been picking fine points of the law to throw at him. They were so clinging to their law-keeping that they couldn't see Jesus for who he was, the very one who came to free them from the penalty of the law. See, they couldn't keep the law. No one could keep the law. No one could keep every fine point of the law. And that's the whole point. The penalty of the law. The punishment is ours. It's, it's death. No one can keep all of God's law, for no one can keep it, says Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. <laughs> Very true. It's here we, we take a cue from verse 17 in our text in John 7, verse 17, when Jesus tells us, go back and look at it again, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. This is so important, so profound, so helpful. We're going to come back to this thought tonight in verse 17, that, that understanding, that, that truly knowing God, that truly knowing the thoughts of God and, and the desires of God and knowing the will of God only comes first by faith and, and comes with a true desire, a deep desire to, to obey God's will. You see, the bottom line was that since those seeking to kill Jesus didn't believe in him, they couldn't rightly judge him because they didn't have the mind of God. They weren't thinking the thoughts of God. Had they truly wanted to obey God, they would have seen Jesus for who he was. Jesus, the one who was the fulfillment of the law they claimed to uphold. It says Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're all cursed under the law, right? Because we can't all keep the law of God perfectly. None of us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The very thing we celebrated this morning with the Lord's Supper as we remind ourselves of the cross of Christ. No one is saved by, by law-keeping. And even, and even as God's child, you don't gain favor in God's sight by law-keeping, by being a rule-keeper. But yet God says, have faith, believe, truly desire to obey my commands, and you will know me, and you will know my thoughts. They were spiritually discerned. No one 
is saved by law-keeping. Only by faith in Christ, the one who took on himself the curse of sin at Calvary in our place, only by Christ are we saved. Not by our rule-keeping, not by our good deeds or good works, but because we are saved, we ought to obey. Because we're God's child, we ought to do good works. That's obedience. And we glorify God when we do. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise you for your word. We thank you for your son. Father, we thank you that we can know that if we truly wish to do God's will, we will know that the teaching that you give us is true. And we'll know it to be powerful in our own hearts and lives because it will change us from what we were to what we will be when we see Christ. God, help us to be more obedient day by day, more desirous of of honoring you with with our obedience, not not because we earn your favor, but because we have been, been forgiven through Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed because Jesus Christ became the curse for us, took our punishment on himself, and for that we bring bring before you our praises. God, I pray that we might praise you and honor you and glorify you by our daily obedience. Lord, help us to point the world that we live in to you by our faithfulness to you, by the way we honor you with our our thoughts, the way we do our work, the way we carry on conversations, and the way we conduct ourselves in business and in school. God, help us to bring great honor and glory to you as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.